All right, well, welcome to Talking Christianity, everybody. This is Josh Gibbs, and today we are talking about cults with John Treat. So stay with us. It should be a good time, and uh, we're going to have a good conversation today. So talking about cults is always a fun one and uh, one that gets a lot of attention. So uh, stay with us and stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, so welcome back, and uh, we are talking about cults today with John Treat. I want to let you guys know who are viewing live, you'll have an opportunity to call in at the end. That number is 866, actually it's 816-866-0025, and you can call in with any question that you've got. Um, if for whatever reason it, it goes to voicemail, you can leave a voicemail with your question, um, or you can just call back. But uh, right now we've just got one phone line, so we shouldn't have any issues there, but we'll see how that works. Uh, also, if you wanted to type in your question online on whatever video platform you're watching from, you can do that as well. Um, so it's on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Periscope and all the big ones, uh, but there's a number of other ones as well. Um, so if you type your chat in or your question in on whatever platform that you're watching from, I should be able to get that and we can get that question in to John as well. So. Um, anyways, let's uh, let's introduce our guest, and we'll get through our introductions and just jump right into uh, the meat of the conversation that we're going to have today. So, uh, John, hey, I've got you on the screen now. I really appreciate you coming oh, okay. on. It's good to have you, man. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've really been looking forward to this. Good, good, good. So, um, yeah, we've been talking about doing this for, I think it's been three or four weeks, but... Um, the way that you and I actually uh, kind of got into this particular conversation was um, online. We were we were having a discussion in a Facebook group um, about uh, not just uh, different cults, but specifically we were talking about um, soteriology as it related to Calvinism. And I don't know if we'll be able to get into that side of it, but I guess um, as far as the structure for the conversation that we're going to have today, um, you've written up 15 pages worth of material that uh, you can talk about. So there's a lot of material to go through, and I'm just going to uh, let you roll with it, and I'll, I'll jump in and just kind of go back and forth where we need to. Um, but if you could, I think this would be a good place to start is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself 
and uh, what it is um, that has brought you kind of in the interest of, of studying cults and, uh, and how it led up to the conversation that we're having right now. Well, my Christianity began when I was very young, and I accepted the Lord at about age six, more or less. I grew up as a person who read very seriously, and my interest in all things, science, religion, philosophy, and such, kept me reading and studying and reading and studying. At some point, in about 1976, the Lord made it clear that he wanted me to be a teacher. And uh, so from that point on, he began to teach me what the doctrines of Christ were. I mean, through various sources, multitudes of different sources came information, which then went to the scriptures, which then went into me to establish sound doctrine. Now, this process took 20 more years from the time of my calling before the Lord gave me the permission to really begin to exercise teaching. So a careful foundation had to be laid before I could do that. Um, my calling is defined as being a watchman and a teacher and makes me what I call being very persnickety about accuracy of terminology and precepts and doctrines, that these accuracies are critical to a sound faith in a Christian salvific theology that can save you. And yes, doctrines are salvific. They're critically salvific because there are a number of key doctrines which I list in my document which can be shown from scriptures that if you, you don't believe this, you don't have the faith in the real Jesus and the real gospel. And those false Jesuses and false gospels cannot save you. They cannot. They're simply incapable. They don't have the power of God behind them or the atonement. So I'm very persnickety about terminology, very persnickety about sort of the way things are said when it comes to properly defining anything. I don't care what subject it is in the scriptures. If you're going to talk about it, you have to have a good grasp. And this brings us to the, the key of my end of my document that I sent you, that there is a need to not jump on the I'm a teacher bandwagon very quickly, as James says in James 3.1, be ye not many masters, knowing that we shall suffer the greater condemnation and the implication being if we should teach falsely, if we should teach inaccurately and incorrectly, we can face the judgment of God for that. For leading people astray. So it's an important issue or, 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 or moral point with me that we get right down to the nitty-gritty of the most basic and correct understanding of each precept that we talk about. When dealing with cults, the problem is universally that they alter the meanings of things. They alter the meanings of the terms and they take the verses out of their context, which is critical to understanding the meaning of the terms, and use them according to their own interpretation or definition of terms. This is universal for every group that is misteaching a various doctrine or scriptural precept. They use their own definitions instead of the biblical uh, principles and precepts as they are intended by the author, which of course originally is God. So my life has been dedicated to understanding and rightly dividing. I know you love that term. I've heard you use it in other podcasts. My life has been dedicated to untangling the confusion 
that people have made around various terminologies and concepts that misrepresent it and therefore lead to a misunderstanding of the cor of the correct doctrine on on the critical salvific doctrines, of which there are eight in my begin in my document and I list the eight that I consider salvific. Now I might add more, but I won't take any of those away. Those are those are stuck. I, you know, they they can't be changed because they can be shown from scriptures. That if that's not what you believe, that nullifies your faith. Okay, so uh, let's yeah, let's start there. I mean, uh, when we're talking about what would identify um, a cult in particular, you've you've obviously narrowed it down to the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think that's a, a, obviously a good place to start. So if you were going to identify a cult and you're, you're starting with the person of, of Jesus Christ, um, how do you define um, the importance of, of, of what, you're, what you're laying out as kind of the foundation for the groundwork there? I mean, um, how important is that? There will be no communication if there is no proper basis of dialogue, if the terminology is different and you say apple and he says apple, it's not going to make sense if I can use a potato potato idea. You've got to have the same terminology and with every individual that you talk to individually, you've got to insist that, they, that you come to a common definition of terms yeah. or you won't proceed with any actual benefit they won't hear what you're saying because they'll translate everything you say into their terms and they'll be just as confused. This is very critical with Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, uh, any group of the extra-Christian, pseudo-Christian cults and religions. But even amongst Christianity, there is a need for us to, to nail down proper definitions, terms like grace and salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What's the actual primitive basis of this concept, and, and, and how are we going to use it, you know? Uh, I could make points from your opening thing that you play every time at the beginning. Yeah. There are things in those statements that need to be addressed that aren't accurate, because he's not properly defining terms in both of the men that speak. Okay, so um, let's let's go there. But before we get there, um, in, in kind of okay. identifying what what uh, would need to be more narrowly defined, and even my opening, um, let's let's talk a little bit about um, you know just kind of the generic saying that if you believe in Jesus, um, that you'll be saved. I mean, is that is that something that is at, uh, what what you would call? Um, a fundamental of the faith in, in the person of Christ, if, if, you're, if we're defining uh, the person of Jesus um, in a different way. So obviously, we'll get right to it. It's just, you've got Mormons who would say that Jesus is not God manifest in the flesh, um, that, he, uh, that he's actually Michael the archangel. You've got Jehovah's Witnesses who have a different de definition um, that it, it gets more narrowly minded that he's not God manifest in the flesh. Um, in fact, I was in Arizona um, over uh, the last week, and I took my kids to the park, and there were there were some Jehovah's Witnesses at the park, and I went up and talked to them. Obviously, they were handing out material, and so I just asked them. I said, "Who who do you guys think that Jesus is?" Um, it, but before I asked them who they thought Jesus was, I asked them what the gospel was, and the answer that I got for what the gospel was was they said, "Well, we teach that um, we teach that." Um, 
you know, you'll learn to be a better person, that you'll learn to be a better father, you'll learn to be a, um, a you'll learn to treat your, your, your wife better, you'll learn to be a better employee, and basically you'll, you'll learn to be a better person. And I said, so that's what you're saying the gospel is? And they said, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's the gospel, that's what we're saying the gospel is. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. I've, I've never really got to have that deep of a conversation uh, with a Jehovah's Witness, so that's a good place to start. But what do you think about the person of Jesus Christ? Do you think he's God? And they said, well, um, it, it, we got into some, some details of that question, and they said, no, he was created being, essentially. Um, and, and then we talked about John chapter 1. Is Jesus, is Jesus the Word? Is Jesus the Word from the beginning? Was he present at the creation? Okay, well, he was present at the creation. So, and we got into some, some details of it. But I guess my question for you is, um, when we're talking about cults, and we're talking about specific cults, um, how important is it to identify the person of Jesus Christ and whether or not, uh, whether or not we're talking about the same person? Um, so let's see if we can start there and run with it, and then we'll get into my introduction video and see where that's wrong. Okay. <laughs> now, I don't mean to pick on you, but those are just a couple of little points that can be played with a little to show you what I mean. The deity of Jesus is number one on my list of eight salvific doctrines, and it's because there's a logical building up there. His deity, Jesus said in John 8, 23 and 24, says, if you do not believe that I am, and that comes from Exodus 3, 14, not from Isaiah, where it says, I am he, the he being added into the text by the translators in parentheses, or italics, sorry. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He's saying that if you don't believe that I am omnipresent, that's a quality of deity. Only God has that quality. No one else. No other being. Not even the angel since omnipresent. He says in John 8, 58, that before Abraham was even born, I am. So this quality or this declaration of his deity he does throughout the whole of the scriptures. And it requires that you believe in that, that he is God in the flesh. And why? Because Hosea 13, 4 says, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There is no other God. There is no other Savior beside me. Not besides, but beside, alongside. No co-redeemer, no second God, no second person, not even you. That helps him to save us. Yeah. Salvation being by grace through faith and not by works. So the deity of Jesus is critical to understanding the real Jesus. He's God manifest in the flesh. And if you don't hold to that, you can't be saved. Yeah. You can't be, because Jesus, you believe, isn't the Jesus of the Bible. He isn't the God that saves. He's another Jesus, as it states in the verse. So, oh, I just want to say, clarify also, that uh, the Mormons believe that Jesus was a God, one of many gods. Right. They were all going to be gods if they did this and that and that and this by their works they earned deity the more uh, the jehovah witnesses on the other hand believe that jesus was once michael the archangel given a promotion yeah to uh semi-deity the mighty god versus the almighty god so their ideas of a pantheistic idea and the mormons are more of a polytheistic idea that make sense? Yeah, no, that's good. Um, and I would agree. I think that Hebrews 11 um, makes it pretty clear that if you're, if you are going to um, be saved, you have to come to God as He is, and understanding who God is is essential to coming to God as He is. 
And uh, when, when you talk about the identity of the personhood of God, it's essential to understand the, the nature of the Trinity. I mean, because God is a Trinitarian Absolutely. God. And if you reject the Trinity... I recently had a discussion with a guy on um, the, the Johannine Common, 1 John 5, 7, and obviously, I listened to them all. So yeah, that was it, it's it, it, that was he's a very he's a real controversial guy because he has a lot of information about um, that passage, the historical side of the argument. Um, but one of the, one of the things that everyone was was getting on me about was like, man, you can't have this guy on your podcast because he's a oneness Pentecostal. He he doesn't believe in the trini- Trinity. And so I just asked him on the show, you know, like, hey, everyone's saying that you're a heretic. I mean. Um, what do you believe? What's your position on the Trinity? Because obviously, I would say it, if you re, if you reject the Trinity, you are rejecting the person of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, and and you're you're worshiping a different Jesus. So, um, I right. and and without getting into the 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 depth of that conversation, I just encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't. Um, but yeah, I mean, when when you're talking about the person of Christ and coming to Him as He is, how important is it to understand the Trinity um, from your perspective? And uh, would you say that you have to have a working understanding of the Trinity before you um, come to Christ in faith um, in order to be saved? Because I think those are kind of two different areas of the conversation there. Okay, on my list of eight doctrines, the deity of Jesus is first, monotheism is second, and then the Trinity is third. And that seems illogical. But it's critical to understand these things. But here's the line in the sand, and I've dealt with this before. People say, well, you mean you've got to know every doctrine perfectly before you can be saved? The answer is no. When you come to Jesus, you come in faith that he died for your sins, and you acknowledge your sins and repent of your sins, and you are saved. That's the key element of the contract of the covenant of Jesus Christ, whereby you're saved. Over time, the Holy Spirit, who is given to guide us into all truth, comes and begins to say hey buddy here look at this and you have to make a decision are you going to accept or deny what this is clearly showing and what the holy spirit is teaching you according to ephesians 1 17 and 18 if he's teaching you these things and you keep rejecting it and denying it then the holy spirit reaches a point where you have grieved him and quenched him and he, he is going to say i'm sorry you're not saved. I know you believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in a conditional salvation. The situation is simply this. If that person continues to rebuke the Holy Spirit and calling him a liar, he's essentially saying, you're the devil. You're not the truth. This is the truth. What I've been told is the truth. You're a liar. You're going to get cut off. But everybody comes, even a Calvinist, we know we don't like them Calvinists, but even the Calvinists, who comes into Christ and is in the simple simplicity of the gospel message, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, he saves me, I believe, I repent, has that salvation for a season until they reject other salvific doctrines or the, the salvific doctrines on that list, number six being the exclusivity of Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the only way of salvation. The real Jesus is the only way of salvation. And cults tend to teach another Jesus of one kind. Walter Martin in his Foundation of the Kingdom of Cults said there's two main doctrines that these cults all attack, either who Jesus is or the works versus grace salvation doctrines. These are the, his two key signs or signatures of the cult. I don't think he went far enough, but he did make some pretty good arguments for that being the case. So a person can have grace under the great mercy of God for a season. He can have 
mercy while God works to bring him into the fullness of the truth. But according to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12, if you keep rejecting the truth for your own positions, then you fall into what is called a strong delusion. It says God gives you a strong delusion, but that's a, not a great rendering of this. God doesn't give people those things. He withdraws the light. He leaves you. Okay, I'm leaving you. I'm giving you your choice that you reject the truth. I'm going to leave you in that strong delusion. And that's how he gives it to you. The rendering being a little suspect there. Not entirely terrible, but not good either. So that's how it happens. I mean, people people might have a momentary time where they believe in Jesus as their Lord, God, and Savior. Or at least their Savior. <laughs> and God has grace on them. But he will not forever resist you know, man, he will not forever fight against the flesh. There comes a point where if you refuse to acknowledge these eight doctrines that I listed here, you simply cannot be in the true faith, and therefore your salvation is null and void. Yeah, um, okay, so so many people would say, it would ask the question, like, where do you get the, um, where, where, where do you come to that position that these eight points that you that you've made um, are the essentials to being a Christian, and uh, and and how do you how do you define like this is this is it? Did you come up with it? Where did you get it? Well, let me just say that having been in the Word since I was six years old, to some degree, and then finally dedicating my life when I was in 1976, about 44 years ago, I have spent many hours in the research and study of scriptures and these aren't something that comes from a, a list someone provided me they are gleaned out of the text and in my i have a right i have another document in which i have posted all the scriptures that support each one of these statements as being essentially true again it goes back to the subject of the real jesus and the real gospel so without those elements to them you're not saved because you're believing in another Jesus and another gospel. Every one of those points I can take you into scriptures and show you where it's delineated as something that is relevant to the gospel or the real Jesus. And the list is, of course, deity of Jesus, monotheism, the Trinity, the virgin birth, the bodily coming, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, the exclusivity of Jesus, the salvation by grace through faith and not works, and my most recent addition and is daily faith and repentance as needful to remain in salvation because it's a conditional covenant based upon your being and remaining in belief and if you turn from that belief into unbelief then there's no more an atonement no more covering for you i saw that smile <laughs> <laughs> see okay now this is where i would challenge you on it um to see where where the authority of that comes and that'd be another another conversation in and of itself because obviously oh, you man. and i would disagree there <laughs> Um, because yeah. essentially what you're saying is this is that's an essential of the faith that you if you don't walk daily that you're going to be that that you're walking away from this conditional covenant and and if you reject this as part of the gospel then you're you're believing in another gospel so essentially what what that if you take that position that it that is an essential of the faith that last point that you made there then you're saying that you and I are even teaching two different gospels um, in a sense, yes. Like I say, I agree with you. I've listened carefully to your entire exposition on soteriology to one person and was agreeing with every point until you got to the point of saying you can't yeah. lose it. Every other thing we said, you said we were in agreement. Daily faith 
is that you, is spoken about in, in, in uh, Hebrews 3, verse 6, and again in verse 14, that you must continue in the faith. You must daily. And in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, today is the day of your salvation. People think that's about evangelism. It's not. It's about you. Today is the day of your salvation. Yesterday's gone. It doesn't count anymore. It's non-existent. And the new tomorrow isn't existent either. This is the day that you believe. This is the day you must have faith. Today, you have to be saved because you have to believe today. And now let's let's look at some people who didn't believe. It says in Hebrews chapter three that these people refused to believe, and they went back into unbelief and were cut off. That they ceased to have the atonement because they rejected God's requirements for their salvation. See, and those are that that last statement is something where I would really narrow down um, the point of the conversation where where you said they. Um, they were cut off from the work of the atonement, uh, and and that's a whole other conversation in and in and of itself. Yes, but I do but I do want to make critical for these doctrines. See, and that's what I I, I would say is um, I mean you and I would even disagree on what what we're defining here as an essential of the faith. So it's it's it it is interesting to have a conversation about cults, and then we to, could get into this issue and go a long time on just the issue of salvation yeah, by grace. Right, faith. and I think that would be a conversation to have another time. But um, right. but okay, so let's see. You've you've laid out the eight points that you believe are. Uh, the essential of the faith, and you believe that you've drawn them out from from the scripture. Um, but let's talk a little bit, take a step back, and identify what a cult is. Let's let's get a definition of a cult, and then give some characteristics of it, so that we can actually answer the question that we're trying to to answer, which is how do you know someone's in a cult, and uh, are you in a cult? I mean, not you personally. I'm saying like <laughs> I know you know what it's a generic <laughs> you. Um, I'm alone. So. I don't have any particular sect I belong to, so I'm a cult of one, I guess. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning of the document and discuss this issue. The word cult in Daniel Webster's 18-something dictionary, international dictionary, had eight definitions, starting with the simple idea of people with a common interest, like matchbook collectors. This idea of a cult is the root of the word culture. Our American culture, the Indian culture, the, you know, whatever culture, that's not negative. It's not bad. It's not a, it has no negative connotations. But it progresses through those eight definitions to the point of referring to people with a common religious belief. Still no negative definitions there. The modern definitions, that when you look into the dictionaries today, have been changed to imply the idea of a group of people who are uh, dangerous by nature. They, they have doctrines that are either dangerous to their own people or to others. It's taken on this entirely different uh, tone and flavor. It's a fundamental shift of the idea. Okay? Right from the start, they, re they, they point to the dangerous things like voodoo. I'm looking at the definition of a cult in the Merriam-Webster's. It's a religion regarding as unorthodox or spurious of adherence. I can't get my document to move so I can read it. <laughs> um... Great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, fanaticism, the object of such a devotion, usually a small group characterized by such devotion, the film has a cult following, and then a system of religious beliefs and rituals, and then formal religious veneration or worship, a system for the cure of disease based on dogma set forth by uh, promulgators of a health cult. So in other words, they, they turn this into an entirely negative concept 
When we talk about cults from the Christian definition, we look at the doctrines which have been established, which you call traditional. I call the biblical doctrines of the Christian faith, the deity of Jesus, the Trinity, the monotheism, uh, the idea that we're saved by grace through faith, as Walter Martin suggests. These fundamental eight doctrines that identify those who are holding to a sound biblical exegesis of the text, whereas with other cults, they add works to grace, like the one you I listened to last night with the Roman Catholic gentleman, who was so very clever. They've had 800 years, 900 years to per perfect this argument that's so convoluted and twisted, in my opinion, on what this whole issue of good works is and how it applies. You have to understand that we use it today as a word always with a negative inflection but it doesn't always int originally intend to have a negative reflection. So by that definition, the full definition, your sect is a cult, my sect is a cult, you know, every group who has their own identifying signature, they're a cult. But they're not necessarily evil cults or bad cults. We call them sects, we call them denominations, but they're still a cult <laughs> by the basic definition. When we talk about the pseudo-Christian cults, we have to understand that there are certain doctrines which are not negotiable. Not negotiable. You can't call that person a Christian because they deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. And according to Hosea 34, only God is the Savior. There's no co-redeemer, no Savior beside him, singular, meaning alongside. If Jesus isn't God, he can't be the Savior, you see. And so when a Jehovah's Witness says he's just a mighty God, that's not the God, he's now uh, has two gods, the mighty and the almighty. Talk to Mormons, he's Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, and he came and got the right to be the savior of this world and be the lord of this world and so forth. And then there's other gods on every other planet and star, moon, asteroid, rock in space has, has a god with beings on it. Even the suns, even the stars, uh, these gods populating the universe with, with people uh, uh, that are from their own lineage, I guess, progeny. <laughs> it's a bizarre doctrine, and it's not the God of the Bible. We have to learn to understand, first of all, what is the sound doctrine, and then we can look at what others believe and discern whether or not they're holding to those essential doctrines of a true Christian faith. Yeah. No, I think that's a good place to start. I mean, um, it is. I, yeah, I was looking it up in the Webster's, uh, what was it, 1919, 1913, and it, it does, it says that um, a cult is literally just, uh, it comes from a Latin word cultus, uh, and it, re it would refer to worship or religious devotion. Um, and that, there, there's a lot of variations within that, and, and it gets more narrow, but as Christians would define a cult, um, typically there's a negative connotation with it. And um, we would use the term cult um, in identifying heresy, heretics, false teachers, false apostles, deceitful workers, mm -hmm. doctrines of devils, traditions of men, evil workers, another gospel, antichrist, evil men and seducers, deceivers, every wind of doctrine, fool, fools, um, them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Um, but obviously that would be uh, in, within the Christian working definition of a cult or a cult right. leader. Um, there's elements of control within cults that may have correct doctrine, um, but it's centered around 
um, the person who is the leader of the organization with a certain devotion towards that person. Um, Usually. As opposed to the person of, of Christ, who should be the object of, of worship and, and devotion. Um, but in, anyways, let's, let's take that working definition, and you talked about it also when you were talking about um, identifying heresies, identifying um, false doctrine, um, towards the end of what you were defining. But I think that if we could take it back, you and I had talked earlier when we had first started that you said, man, there's even some problems in your introduction video as, uh, as we're talking uh, about doctrine. Um, so let's, I mean, let's have a little fun with it. Let's, let's look at what do you think is wrong with the introduction video? Because obviously I've got a lot of different guys there from differing points of view as, as it's related to soteriology. And for me personally, um, people ask me all the time, like, why are you doing this podcast? Like, what's the point of the podcast? And for me, it's it's conversations like this where we're really narrowing down and getting real specific um, with the different doctrines of the of the Bible, not just not just to see who's right or who's wrong, but obviously to reach the lost for, with the gospel of Christ and uh, to win souls to Christ and to teach people to grow in grace and doctrine in their walk with Christ, to really mm-hmm. understand the importance of the Word of God, to grow in the relationship with God. But um, yeah, let's um, let's do that if you've got a second. If you want to, if not, we can move on to the next point. No big deal. Well, well I, as I listened to it over and over and over, I heard certain things. It's not like a major issue, but it is an issue of fine-tuning of what I call my persnickety nature. Yeah. Uh, the passage or the statement where the guy says that people who deny the the salvation of God are justly condemned. Mm-hmm. Says they're under the wrath of God because they rejected his provision. His propitiation. His provision. Okay, that's fine, except that it's not accurate. Yeah. There's people in the world who are going to go to hell not because they denied God's provision. But because they never heard it, they didn't know it. And see, then that begs the question, why do they go to hell if they've never heard it and didn't get a chance to hear it? See, and he's saying it's because they rejected it, but he's not. They they don't deserve salvation. Here's the cold, Mm. hard, patriarchal truth. No one is owed salvation. We're all sinners. Every man out there in the universe that's ever lived has sinned. They have all are deserving of hell. This is, again, going back to the gospel. And no one does God owe salvation to, which is what drives Christians out to proselytize, out to you know evangelize, because we want them to hear it. We want them. And this is part why it has to go out to every every language on the earth, every person you know, has got to have at least some testimony that they could have heard it. But God doesn't know those people who died a thousand years ago, never heard, or two or three thousand years ago, who never knew Jesus or were part of the Jews and didn't know about a Messiah and didn't have any. He doesn't owe them salvation, so he's not unjust to send them to hell. Yeah, so that um, that's interesting to hear you say that. Um, I, I th- So you said it's begging the question to assume that they deserve to hear the gospel, and, and you went on to say, well, no one deserves to get the gospel. We all deserve to go to hell. Um, and, and, right. and what I would point out is, one, I think it's it, it would be begging the question that anyone who doesn't hear the gospel does go to hell um, if they haven't heard it. Um, but two, it, it would be, it, it's interesting to, to say 
that those who haven't heard the gospel are going to hell. Um, when, when obviously you and I would both agree that the Bible teaches in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the true light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. So I'd be interested to hear your take on that. I mean, if, if, if not everyone hears the gospel, then, then why do you think that, that those who don't hear the gospel go to hell? Okay. Well, first of all, the first messianic promise was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. Yeah. That is the first messianic promise carried out through Isaiah 7.14 and the virgin birth and Jeremiah and so forth and even up into the Gospels of Matthew. So there has been a witness there throughout all of history. God hasn't been unjust in saying there's no witness. But yeah. these... Boy, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm sorry. Getting old here. <laughs> You're good, man. <laughs> the, oh, I wish. Um, not like the old days. The gospel message, well, oh, I remember my second point clearly now. It was, it's in Romans 1, and you're going to disagree with me on this too, because <laughs> in Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 17, they all knew God. Yeah. And it's referring to you as a child, as a young person, you knew, as a babe. And that they had this, and that word knew is from the Old Testament concept of the intimate knowledge of a husband and wife. They, Adam knew Eve, or Cain knew his wife. This principle, this is an idiom of Judaism, that there was an intimate relationship of every person born for a period of time as a child, before they chose, according to the rest of Romans 1, to go into unrepentant sinning and end up becoming re unregenerate or defiled spiritually and irreparably. So while they had this knowledge, they chose to, to reject it and turn away from it. So in that regard, perhaps whoever was speaking in that opening statement might be right in saying that they, that everyone had an opportunity. But did they really have an opportunity to, to the gospel, or did they just have a knowledge that there was a want, that there is a righteous God out there, and they just don't want to know about it because they love their sin more and they want their sin more? So they have turned away from God and rejected God into, as it says in Romans, given themselves over to their lusts and to their desires gone into becoming uh, completely in rebellion to the God and, and lost that intimate communion through their spirit becoming defiled by sin. See, I'm a believer in no inherited sin nature, so we're looking at an issue here that you've discussed and I've listened to yeah. you discuss on several of your podcasts. So, yes, go ahead. Um, okay, so you're saying that, and I, and I know we're getting a little bit off topic here. Of course. Um, but... Okay, and, and I won't draw it out much much more, but I just want to understand your position on that. Um, okay. So you, you're saying okay. that Romans 1 is establishing uh, the fact that everyone was born with regenerate. regenerate. And then when they when they rejected they rejected God that they became reprobate and lost their salvation. No, they didn't have, well, yeah, in a sense, but you can't say salvation. They just weren't going to go to hell because they were, as children, you're not under the law. It says in Romans uh, 4.15 and 5.13 that there's no law, sin is not imputed. So these are children are in innocence until they come to a point where they know yeah. what they're doing wrong. And they begin to defile themselves because they're not repenting of their sins. And then they become accountable under the principle of accountability for the sins they commit. But you're, you're taking that as a starting point 
um, to get to uh, John chapter 1, that that is the light that they start with. Yeah, it is the light. We all have that light of the knowledge of God, that there is a righteous, loving God. I mean, look at the creation, Paul says in Romans 1. It's there, testimony of the fact that there is a God. And, yeah. and this is apparent to all, and they knew God. That key word is so critical to understanding that passage. That's good. Um, okay, yeah, so I, I think I understand your position a little more um, on that. Okay. And uh, obviously I would disagree. But <laughs> that's, <laughs> I mean, not a surprise. So let's, uh, let's, no. let's go into um, specifically, I mean, we've, we've identified the definition of a cult. We've identified some of the differences that you and I would have in, in naming what would be an essential of the faith to identify a cult. Because obviously right now as it stands, you would say that um, I'm preaching a different gospel than you are because I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. Um, so okay, I'm sorry to cut in right there. No, good. It, it, I, it's the right point to do this, to say this. Again, there are doctrines that are salvific and doctrines that are not directly salvific. They're wrong, yeah. but they're not going to cost you your salvation. Okay? Because they're not affecting the real Jesus and the real gospel. Okay, the fact that you believe that you're going not going to be able to lose your salvation, to me, doesn't directly affect your salvation. Oh, see, I thought you I thought you put that as number eight on your essential of the faith. That's perhaps how you saw it, but when they said you must remain daily in faith yeah. and daily in repentance as needful, number eight. Yeah. This doctrinal idea is that today, do you believe Jesus is Lord, God, and Savior? Do you believe that today? Oh, of course, yeah. That's, but that's but what I'm but. Uh, but if you stop believing that, yeah. like the atheist you talk to, yeah. then there's no more than a sacrifice, according to Romans t or Hebrews 10, 26 and on. Ah, there see, see and that's where we would differ on our interpretation there. Um, right. Yeah. It, okay, so we don't need to get into that. We could. That'd be good. That'd be, but that's, okay, so let's, let's, time. let's take this. I get it. So what you're saying is that's not an essential if you believe that you can't lose your salvation. That doesn't mean uh, that... That's that's that that's not an essential to the faith in your mind. Not one of the critical doctrines I that see. affect or directly affect your salvation. It's just a, what I consider a bad Good. teaching, just like you would consider what I believe <laughs> a bad teaching. And it's, it doesn't break fellowship. Yeah. Um, okay, good, good, good. So where do you want to go from here in regard to identifying cults? Because I've got one. Um, I've got a, a screenshot of a conversation in particular with identifying cults. Um, that you you were involved in, but I want to see where you want to go in this in this conversation uh, next. Where do, where do you want to go? Well, for me, uh, the laying out of that document I sent you was sort of a program to go through step by step Sweet. different areas. Um, I'm quite happy to discuss specific doctrines that you would like to understand better or know why they're false, like. The Calvinist doctrine. I do, yeah. I didn't know if you Calvinist, wanted to get into that or not. The Calvinist doctrine of the Jesus that they believe in, or which is a little tougher to show, but the, the one concerning the limited atonement. Uh, I really hate that doctrine. <laughs> yeah, let's look at that, man. Um, so it, we we were talking um, back and forth before we actually came up with this this the structure that you sent me on what you wanted to talk about and as it relates to Calvinism. and But we were having the conversation with someone online, and everybody has that question. You know, is Calvinism teaching the same gospel 
one is what the Bible is teaching, but two, like what a provisionist would would teach as the gospel, or or um, an Arminian is teaching as the gospel. Like, where do you take that conversation as it's related to the gospel, and and specifically where it's related in the conversation of of cults? Where do you go with with limited atonement specifically? Because I mean, you've you've obviously Calvinism is not monolithic. You've got some Calvinists who would openly reject uh, limited atonement, and it was it was rejected at the Council of Carthage as heretical, um, okay. and it was it it was obviously adopted at at the Council of Dort um, many years later. But it it's it's one of those things where it's like, gosh, I mean, w- when we're defining the gospel, obviously it's clearly laid out in First Corinthians fifteen one through four, with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. As, as Paul defines it. Um, but the way that I look at it is the death, burial, and resurrection is, is an outline for the gospel. You've got the death. Let's spend years and years and years breaking down and talking about the death of Christ. You've got the life of Christ, but you've got the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ as well. And obviously, if Christ isn't, isn't risen, then our faith is in vain and that, I mean, none of us have any hope anyway. So when we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about the atonement, the atonement is going to deal with the death of Christ. And if, you, right. if you're defining the atonement as being limited versus unlimited, like, there's some obviously clear differences here. Like, Very are these so. the same gospel? Like, where do you go with that, John? Okay, here's how this works. And it's really as simple as I can to some people and they just don't get it. First of all, Calvinism is rooted in a Gnostic foundational presumption, which they color everything they believe and all their terminology from that presumption. When we talk about them, they say that all things physical are by nature evil, so God's the only good, and he's the only one with a will, and he's the only one that can save people by that, you know, his choice and nobody else's choice. They, they deny human free will. This fundamentally changes the whole nature of the gospel they preach. They use different terminology and concepts to define their terms. Now let's be specific about the the atonement. My statement for the atonement is very simple. The atonement of Jesus Christ was plenary. That means fully extensive to everything. It's plenary, even up to including the creation, by the way. But it's plenary and efficacious to the forgiving of all sins of all men at every time and place throughout human history. Now, doesn't that mean I believe in universalism? Well, here's where you got to throw them the second uh, line and the second hook. The word covenant means contract. And they just don't get that. Boy, they hate that. (laughs) They can't have man having a covenant with God because there is no free will in man, so he can't do contracts. But the fact is the covenant of Jesus Christ declares that if you don't come with faith and repentance... You don't get the benefits of the contract, of the covenant of Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance is the clause, or what's called it law, the performance clause. For our part, we come with faith and repentance, and we get saved. If we don't come, then we're in unbelief. Remember our previous discussion about unbelief. Unbelief eliminates you or limits you from being able to partake in the contract. You violate the contract if you go back into unbelief. You can't get into the contract if you don't come in belief and with repentance. Since we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 6 2 and uh, Hebrews 3, verses 4 through or 6 through 8. Faith and repentance are the key 
provisions of the covenant contract. So the, the atonement, while having the ability to forgive everyone, if any man anywhere would repent and, and believe, they could be forgiven and saved right back to Adam and Eve where they got the first promise. It's not applied universally. It's applied conditionally based upon that contractual terminology. Okay. And Calvinists can't get that. They cannot comprehend that. Most of them don't even understand it at all. Okay. Um, all right. So that's there's there's a lot there to go with. Um, oh yeah. Um, let's see here. So we've got a, a few questions that have been coming. I want to let you guys know who are watching. Um, you can you can type in your questions, and uh, I'll try to get to those towards the end when we when we open it up to the audience. You can also call in if you'd rather do it that way. I put the number up on the screen so you can see that. Uh, let me put it up there again real quick. That number is 816-866-0025. And uh, we should get there uh, probably in about 30 minutes or so uh, to open it up to the audience um, and then give you guys enough time to get your questions in if you want to as well. But uh, but Sydney said that this is an interesting conversation, a good, a good conversation to have. So thank you, Sydney, for that comment. Um, then we've got Gary Whitehouse. I want to put this up on, on the screen. And John, um, if you get a chance uh, to respond to this, I'd like to hear your take on it. Um, he says that um, he's got a problem with using the word deity with Jehovah's Witness because pagans have deities. So what would your, what would your response be to Gary as it's related to using the word deity with, with Jesus? Well, this is an important point, too, which can be used to expose the Jehovah's Witness false thinking. The Anglo-Saxon word God is used customarily as a name of a being, somebody, a person, if you will. But the original Greek is theos, and in the Strongest Concordance, it's defined as deity or deities. It's a descriptive term used to define a nature and essence of deity, which is in Jesus, as well as the Father, and as well as the Holy Spirit, shared equally by all three. I don't have any problem with using the word deity or theos in the Greek to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe in that Jesus is a deity, just a sub-deity under the deity of, of um, the Father. And that makes them again more of a, a pantheist, or sorry, polytheistic in their thinking because all the polytheistic beliefs like those in Babylon were based on this idea that there were a hierarchy of gods greater God and lesser gods. And if you look at Daniel chapter 4, Daniel says there's the, you know, the high God, the most high God. He says there's the most high God who's the Lord of heaven and earth, da, 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 the one great true God. So, no, I don't see a problem with using the word deity as long as you properly understand it's not referring to a person, but to a nature and an essence shared equally by all three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity. Hence, we are monotheistic, yet we believe in three persons, but one deity. If we use the word God, everybody thinks, oh, that guy over there, God. Well, no, it's not that guy over there. It's that nature and essence of deity. How do we define that? Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal spirit. That's the fundamentals of a deity that Jesus expresses throughout the Gospels when he's expressing his own deity. He says, I am omnipotent like the Father in John 10. He says, I am omnipresent like the Father in John 8 and in John uh 3.13, when he says, you know, there's no man has come down from heaven except the Son, which is up in heaven, present tense, in heaven while talking to 
to Nicodemus on the earth. Yeah. So there's this omnipresence there in that passage. So let's so, take that and break it down a little bit more. Um, you, okay. you, were, you, you said that there, you don't have any problem with using the, the term deity uh, with Christ, and it's obviously, you broke that down even further to talk about the, the reference of uh, monotheism within a Trinitarian formula um, as, it's related to, um, as it's related to position and not a person. Um, but you made a reference back to Isaiah where he's, re- he's, he's, he's called the Most High God, no, and, that was in Daniel. Or in Daniel. Oh, yeah, it is Daniel. Daniel four. Yeah, the end of Daniel four. Um, so let's let's talk about it. let's so for those of you who are listening. Um, I want to make sure that we're we're clear on this, um, and and see where it's coming across it, as far as your position is, um, as it relates to other gods. Do you believe that there is more than one God, and that that God, the Trinitarian God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Um, three persons um, in in one essence, or however you want to that's phrase. That's the nature of deity. So you've got the essence and nature of deity, um, and the Trinitarian formula of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how does that relate to um, the um, other gods? I, where do you want to go in that conversation? Because it seems like that that part of the conversation is getting a lot more attention in other other podcasts and conversations um, lately, especially with Michael Heiser and um, <laughs> and um, uh, what does he call it? The the Divine Council uh, with Psalm eighty two yeah. and and those Psalms eighty two. Yes, yeah. That concept there, Joshua. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't interrupt you. No, you're good. That concept in Psalms 82 was quoted by Jesus in John 10 when he condemned those Jews for condemning him. He was basically calling those Jews in John 10 a bunch of bad judges, evil judges, falsely judging. Because that's the point of Psalms 82. So the Elohim, or the, the, the council of the gods, if you will, is inclusive of judges in the earth. Who, and kings who have power and life and death over others and can decide men's fates. But it doesn't mean they're deities in the sense that they're omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and you know, eternal spirits. No. So there's a broader sense to this term Elohim and this concept of deities in a loose sense that, that anybody, like a king, can be acting in the role of one who has power of life and death over others, like only God should have. You see what I'm saying? Is that clear? Um, yeah, so you would take the position that uh, the congregation of the mighty... Here, I'll just read it. It says, um, this is a song, a psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. Right. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Salah. So that's verses 1 and 2. Um, but in re- specifically, you're making a reference to the congregation of the mighty and him judging among the gods. That word in the Hebrew for gods is Elohim, which is a plurality um, use of, of not necessarily deity, um, but it's, it's certainly a, a term that is used even of angelic beings. But you're, you're saying um, the reference to judging among the gods is a reference to the judges of Israel as opposed to the angelic beings of heaven. It would include all of them, all the way down the scale. I see. All the way from top to bottom. See, in the Babylonian concept of, of the 
polytheism. They had high and low gods, and each god had their own area of influence and powers and authorities. They covered some did the seasons, some did the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the weather, different things, okay? And they were independent deities with varying natures and qualities, and, and, and it would include kings as well and, and people under him, judges, and those who could control the lives of others. If by extension, you carry it all the way down from heaven, all the way down to the earth. So when it says here in Psalms 82, 6, I have said, ye are gods and all of you are children of the most high, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. In the Judaic concept, there were angels over the nations. Each nation had an angel, but they also, there was a sign to them fallen angels by Lucifer over those same nations and these different deities, if you will, because they were greater than us. Some of them angels, you know, had a lot more power than we do, but they weren't deities in the pure sense of omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and eternal spirit. The one true God, right. there's no gods formed before me and I see none formed after me, it says in Isaiah 45, I believe it's 10. So we're dealing with a terminology that realizes that, that kings and rulers on this planet act in the role of a god of a deity, if you will, yeah. not, while not necessarily having the nature of a deity. Yeah. See, look at this, man. We are supposed to be talking about cults, and I'm an <laughs> expert on getting off on stuff like this. So, <laughs> You're a rabbit trailer. <laughs> <laughs> man, I get a thought. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Let's chase it a little bit. Um, okay, so let me make one, one final point on this and uh, mm -hmm. leave it open, and then we can move on to the next point in our conversation on cults, which is supposed to be what we're All talking right. about. So, okay. Um, when you talk about um, him judging among the gods or the congregation of the mighty, um, Heiser would obviously look at this and, and make it a reference back to 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, where he says, where he's obviously drawing a, a distinction that this, this could not be the Israelite judges or any of Aaron's seed or any seed of man as it's related to these judges among and and. and and God uh, with the congregation of the mighty and judging among the gods. Because it says, and he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And takes that and makes it a reference back to Job chapter 1 um, with, with the angels, the sons of God, coming before God and the counsel of God. Um, in dealing with the affairs of men, and specific, specifically, you can see uh, the result of, of that counsel um, between God and, and Satan as it related to Job and the result of that. But um, it, it would seem like there's a little bit more to that conversation. Um, let me just let me just redirect briefly. Yes. Who was Jesus talking to in John 10 when he said, "Ye are gods"? I said, "Ye are gods." Who is he talking to? Oh, I don't know. I don't have it pulled up. John 10 is where they're going to stone him because he says, I and the Father are one. I'm omnipotent. The Father's omnipotent. Verse 28 and 29, I and the Father are one. And they took up stones to stone him. Yeah. So why? And then they they say, because thou being a man makest yeah. thyself God. You're right. And he says, I have said, have I not, have not, has the Father, but have I not said, ye are gods and children of the Most High? And he's making reference to them as wicked judges, equal to those in Psalms 82. Yeah. Because they control the life of Jesus right now, they're going to kill him. 
by making a judgment on him, they're in a position of claiming the authority that only God should have of killing people. Yeah. And so they are playing the role of a deity. Even if they're not literally a deity, they're pretending to be like a deity and saying, I'm going to kill you because you did this, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's an unjust right, unjust judgment. So that's all I've got to say about um, that. So I'll have to look at that a little more. That's good. Um, let's look at, so you, you were writing about um, the biblical conception of, of the meaning of the term cult as it relates to um, hirelings. And you hear a lot of, of, of conversation today about false prophets and hirelings and those 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 terms as it's related to you know a lot of conversations that go on today with you know people that want to say there's credibility or non-credibility with with people who are pastors and shouldn't be pastors and people that are wolves and and sheep's clothing and that kind of thing but let's talk about that a little bit as it relates to a cult and uh see where you want to go there well we know from many experiences that these people in these cults that are teaching some bizarre doctrines, by the way, are doing it for the money. They're living like kings off of what they get from the people that they brought in and, and brainwashed into their particular sect or cult. Uh, Bill Johnson, Bethel Reading Church, drives around in a $350,000 Austin Martin. And he's the least of the sinners in this cult, in this section. We've got people with multiple million dollar mansions of Learjets and cars and, you know, wearing shark skin suits running around off the money that they've made from this idea. And the hirelings is a reference to the idea that these people are there as long as there's a profit to be made. But as soon as they have to face persecution or actual are come up against by by men or or demons whatever they're gonna flee they're gonna leave you to your oh good luck to you i got mine i'll see you later this is the nature of the hiring that's not their sheep they're just there because they can make a good profit i knew some people i won't mention their name or anything but they thought that it was all about you know getting a job as a pastor because man it was easy work and, and and you didn't have to get your hands dirty and made decent money and that was their motivation for becoming a pastor but the paul talks about or i'm sorry paul but john says and they make merchandise of, oh, i'm sorry peter of you yeah they make merchandise of you this idea is that they're using you for profitability. That's their goal. And they, they have their multitudes of books and records and recordings and videos. They have their their big church where you're paying and you're required to pay an unbiblical tithe. Okay, here comes the rabbit trail. I can see it in your <laughs> face. <laughs> the unbiblical tithing system that is instituted in the church, what I call churchianity today, the combination of church and insanity churchianity these guys have built a system where they make merchandise out of the people of god they make they fleece the sheep if you will and that idea of cults it is predominant in them most who are in a, a sincere christian faith wouldn't think of doing that wouldn't think of of taking advantage of the amount of money that can be brought in to somebody who's charismatically you know driven people go oh look at this guy he's great he really speaks good like them should i mention anybody's names oh i don't there care I it doesn't bother me jakes <laughs> yeah. uh what's her name uh gosh i can't remember names i was blanking out old man disease um just so many of them uh rick warren 
Todd Bentley. They'll start coming to me real soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what do you think? So, what What do you think about it? Wrong. So you think Rick Warren is a cult leader? Absolutely. The whole purpose-driven thing was nothing but a hype. Who voted to make him the ambassador to the UN for for Christians? I didn't. Did you vote for him to be ambassador to the UN for Christians? Oh, I don't know. No, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, but he is. Yeah. But does that get, but does that make him a cult leader? Not that alone, but the yeah. whole idea of what he's what he's teaching is is just so. Oh, how to put it? Pap. It's pablum. It's it's meaningless. The purpose-driven life book. I I have to tell you was the most meaningless drivel I've ever read in my life. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to be blunt. I hope I don't get sued for it, but they ain't got much to take. I own everything I own is in this little room. <laughs> no, so they can take what they want. I don't care. I mean, they, I mean, I'm just trying to identify because um, I don't, I don't have any problem naming names or anything. I think there's a lot of problems with uh, the majority of, I mean, just people in general. But um, as it's related yeah. to, as as it's related to the the conversation, when we're na we're obviously you're you're naming big names like T.D. Jakes, Rick Warren. Uh, Phil Johnson, Osteen, but you're you're using them in reference to um, the conversation of a cult and cult leader. So I, I obviously people would want to know like what are you using to identify these guys as cult leaders? Um, if if you're saying that they are a cult leader, like what makes what makes Joel Osteen or what makes um, T.D. Jakes or what makes um, what makes Rick Warren a cult leader specifically? If if Okay, being of a Christian belief in what's called the patriarchal paradigm, I have years and miles in the scriptures, not just casually, but committed to studying and reading and learning and knowing. And, and I have these miles that have laid a foundation of understanding, and I have the gift of spiritual discernment that comes to all regenerate Christians to discern, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15. That the, he that is spiritual judges all things because the Holy Spirit gives him wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of these things. You may not believe in that, but I believe in that active relationship with God through regeneration, which I'd love to talk about sometime. These people are not preaching the gospel. They're preaching what, and we're leading into what I wrote, wrote later in this document, the postmodern spirit of this age, which is ecumenical consensus thinking easy believism, greasy grace, if you want to call it that, the idea that, hey, let's just all get along, you know, yeah. you're okay, I'm okay, the idea that, that we must come together in consensus, and the, in that consensus we'll find the truth, when in the reality of scriptures it's didactic, it's thus saith the Lord, that's the truth, and what you have to say about it is only relevant if it agrees with what God has said. Yeah. So in that light, people need to know what God has said. They have to read not just one book or one verse out of context, but learn the whole of the book, learn to understand what's called theological context, which nobody, none of the people you talk to that I've listened to, understand theological context. I hate to say it, but they don't. They're looking at one verse and maybe a couple verses before and after. But when I look at a verse, I look at the entire book. Then I look at the chapter, and I look at the context throughout the entire books that relates to that verse to get a sense of it. And then I look at the whole Bible and put it in context of the whole Bible. But you got to know that. If you don't have the miles, you're not going to know how to put that in that context. You may be smart, really smart, and I think you are, but others may be smart, and they may think they know the Bible really well, but they really only know what they think. 
So for a lot of you guys who are listening, you've you've probably heard those names before, um, and and you're saying that you've got the mileage to recognize these guys as false teachers, false prophets with a false gospel. Um, but tell us, like, what is it specifically about Rick Warren? What is it specifically about T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen? What are they preaching? I mean, because the ecumenical movement itself isn't a false gospel. It's, it's obviously something to bring unity to what they would say is a common faith. Um, and obviously you and I would say there's distinctions there that you cannot have unity if you don't have the, the proper understanding of what the gospel is, if you're trying to find unity in the gospel. Um, but let's let's take a second. Like, what is it about Joel Osteen? What is it about Rick Warren and T.D. Jakes? What what gospel are they preaching that is actually false? Well, it's what they're not saying more than what they're saying. Okay. It's what they're ignoring, which is the issues of sin and repentance, yeah. of honesty and integrity. I'm sorry, and of the fact that you can't be friends with the dark side. According to 2 Corinthians 6, again, verses 14 to 18, I believe, that come out of her, you know, what fellowship is light with darkness? I could pull up the verses and read them to you. This idea is that Rick Warren says, well, we and Muslims, we have a lot in common. We all believe in the same God of the Old Testament. No, we don't. I'm sorry, but Allah is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Never was and never can be. So Rick Warren is trying to bring what's called Chrislam. Oh, you're right. To existence. This concept of Chrislam says that Christians and, and, and Muslims believe in the same God, ultimately. We'll just ignore all the critical major differences for the sake of ecumenicalism. So I don't agree with you that ecumenicalism is harmless or, or even good for Christians. It's a bad idea. The Pope says, oh, you can get to heaven if you, you Muslims can get to heaven. If you just think well of Jesus and do your best. Now, where does that come in on the scale of saved by grace through faith and not works? No, where does yeah, that come yeah. up That's to good. the scale of Jesus is God or you're going to die in your sins? It doesn't. It contradicts those two fundamental doctrines of that list. And so that is another gospel that he's preaching. And I hate to say it, I loved Billy Graham growing up, listened to him many times, but the man said the same thing. And that is not the gospel. That is a heretical true doctrine that denies him salvation. Because you don't get to heaven by just thinking well of Jesus and doing the best you can. That is simply not the gospel. So those yeah. two are right there. Then we look at Joel Olstein. That guy has got the biggest pot smile on his face every day. But if I had all the money he had, maybe I'd be smiling every day. The problem is he's, he's preaching what's called a feel-good gospel. And, it's, it, and I don't have specifics, I'm sorry, I'm getting old, I don't have specifics on the thousands of people out there teaching screwy stuff. But his doctrines have no, I don't sense any spirit there, any Holy Spirit in it. And yeah. that, I'm sorry, that's a subjective personal opinion, but I don't sense it. I can't pinpoint to a specific thing he said because I don't, I've lost track of all these guys. I mean, Todd Bentley, I've lost track. Doesn't mean I didn't at one time, but I've lost track of all the goofy stuff they're doing. I mean, what's that gal, man? Joyce Myers, who's saying yeah. that what the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, with Rick Joyner and Todd Bentley and Bill Johnson and a bunch of others. Uh, what's the other guys? Another prophet out there that jesus had to go to hell oh in the word of faith movement jesus had to go to hell for three days and be tortured before the atonement was finished 
I can't even figure out where they get that out of the scriptures. Yeah. You know what I'm Psalm saying? Psalm 22. Oh, but that doesn't say that he had to go to hell and be tortured by demons. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we would, we there's, <laughs> when you've got the, um, uh, within the, um, oh, why am I not, I, I'm having a, a, a blank right here. Old man, woman. The <laughs> atonement, um, the substitutionary atonement. Um, so with the substitutionary atonement, obviously that would be um, something that we would be describing as as what took place um, at, with Christ being the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That He literally paid the price for our sins. So we ask the question, like, what is the price for our sins? And you see in in Psalm eighty, Psalm twenty two, um, a picture of of Christ in hell, and in Ephesians three. Um, Verses eight through ten, it says, "What is it that he that what is what is it that he that descended is also he that ascended from the lower parts of the earth?" So, um, you've got Christ in Second Timothy, Second Peter three, going down and preaching the gospel, preaching um, to the um, to the souls in hell. Um, so there's 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 a lot of references there, but I think there's a, what the controversy would be over is whether or not Christ was. Um, Christ suffered the punishments in hell that we would have suffered in hell um, and being burned and tormented and all of those I, things. So I, I think, see your yeah. point. I see what you're getting at, and it's total nonsense. Sorry, <laughs> not yours, <laughs> but their idea. It's total nonsense because the punishment for sin is death. Death. Now, that death has two meanings. Physical death is one, but there's also the separation from God. That's the second death. Eternal separation from God is the second death. It begins when a person sins and they lose their communion with God by defiling of their spirit and becoming unregenerate. But the real fulfillment of that is the separation from God in hell. Let me, let me ask you this. So I, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Um, so David, when he's praying to God, he says... Behold, though I make my bed in hell, right. thou art there. So uh -huh. is it? How is it separation from God? If David is saying, like, literally, if he ends up in hell, he's there. God's there with him. Because how do I put this? See, now we're in a really big subject that I wanted to add. Uh, sent you uh, a request for this rethinking, re-rethinking hell, because we need to redefine some things. First of all, there's hell A and hell B. Did you know that? Yeah. You did. I well, I of course. Well, I mean, it just depends on on where you're looking at uh, kind of the terminology for it. You've got Abraham's bosom, you've got hell, you've got Tartarus, you've got Gehenna. Um, no, that's not what I mean. Well, what do you mean? Well, first of all, the belly of the earth is hell A. Yeah. Where Jesus went, where all the souls, good and bad, of all the righteous and unrighteous, up until the time of Jesus' resurrection, were held. The belly of the earth, it's called. Mm -hmm. You can say Gehenna if you want. There's a couple other of those terms that apply. But if you read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it says that that hell is thrown into hell B, otherwise known as the lake of fire. Wow. Remember that? Well, okay. Well, that's, that's kind of... So, okay. how can it be the same hell? It's not the same hell. It's not the same thing. And, and when you get down to thinking of the mechanics of the soteriology, no one in hell A is getting tormented. Because they have not yet been through the white, great white throne judgment, and they're not guilty hmm. of anything until they have been righteously judged as sinners. So what do you think about the rich man in Luke 16, where he said that um, he's tormented daily? This is a parable. Portray a picture. That's doesn't but, have to but be does exactly, it... accurately literal. <laughs> 
I see. I know okay. that everybody says it's a parable, but um, it is a parable. Okay, it's not meant to be taken literally. But e- every other parable is identified as a parable, and this particular parable that we're calling a parable is not identified as a parable. But even if it is a parable, it it it. It's still, the purpose of a parable is to set two things beside each other, one physical to represent one spiritual. So even if it is a parable and you, you've got the rich man in hell and you've got, um, you've, you've got the, the, the beggar, the poor beggar, um, one man ends up in hell, one man ends up in, in, in paradise. Um, where is it? What is, what's it a picture of? I mean, if, if, it's, if it is a parable, what's it, what's it supposed to be a picture of? Well... One of the things you have to understand is that this takes place outside of the realm of time. Time isn't in, in there. So the man who's suffering could very well be in hell be for the sake of the parable. And for the sake that that's the only place people are going to be tormented is in hell B, not hell A. So it's, it's meant to, hmm. to give the idea that you don't want to be there. And once you're there, there's nothing that you can do to come out of it, get out of it, or have any hope of being saved after that. Um, okay. <laughs> gosh, man, there's so many. This is, it just opens a door to a whole other level of conversation that we could have. Um, and I, it, I think it's one that is necessary. It's the, these are obviously conversations that, that need to be had and people, need to, people do think about and people talk about. Or else we wouldn't have uh, any any sense in talking about it on a podcast. Because uh, I mean, you've got entire entire podcasts and Facebook pages that are solely dedicated to the doctrine of hell, that are solely dedicated to the doctrine of soteriology, and uh, we've touched on both of those a little bit today. But um, we were talking about earlier. Um, you you had mentioned Ephesians chapter one, and I'd like to take a second to go back to this. Um, because a lot of the conversation that you and I have have had have been primarily centered around Calvinism, and, and particularly um, right. what brought about this conversation with with uh, predestination. And and you had written in that um, the PDF that you had sent me for what uh, you had put together for this particular conversation. Um, there, the way that they would read into the text as it's related to soteriology but specifically as it's related to the conversation of whether or not calvinism is or is not a cult so if you could let's take a second and look at um ephesians chapter one and why you would take the position that what they are doing is is uh is taking a cultish position to read something into the text to control their people or or where where would you where would you want to go with that side of the conversation well, this is, again, in the documents, this idea of what's called presumptive eisegesis. That's, what, that's my term. Other people might say presuppositional, but I don't like that term. I think presumptive is a better expression of what they're doing. They take an idea that they have, and they insert it into the text, because it's got to be there. It's got to mean that according to our uh, theological construct. And that's what it's got to mean. So that's what they do in these passages. Anytime they see the word predestined or chosen, they automatically assume and insert virtually sub-vocally, intellectually, in their mind even, the words to be saved. According as he has chosen us to be saved in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to be saved. 
in unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And this is where cognitive dissonance comes into play. This is where the whole idea of brainwashing comes into play the, of the cults. And Calvinism is a major player in these two areas of presumptive eisegesis and conditioning through brainwashing. To think of these verses in the terms of it meaning to be saved instead of what it plainly says. In verse 4 it says, He has chosen us. Why? from before the foundation of the world, that we who are saved should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's what he chose, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's what he wants for everyone who should get saved. There's no to be saved inserted in there in any word, any portion of that verse 4. And the same with the word predestinated. He didn't predestinate anyone to salvation. He predestinated us unto adoption. It says it very plainly what he predestined. And no, no one has the right to insert those ideas into the text. That is, as one of your past speakers said, a very terrible uh, perversion and resting upon the text to insert that idea there. Oh, but you have to be saved to be predestinated. Well, duh, we know that. But the question is not how you got saved by God picking you, but that you who are saved will be adopted. You see how that works? And it's true in every other case where they look at the word predestined or chosen or elect they automatically assume that that is a, a, has a certain meaning that they have established and designed and brainwashed and forced and driven and driven and driven into yeah. those that they are speaking to. Um, okay, so as it's related to this side of the conversation, I, I posted this, um, our podcast that we're doing right now, uh, in Soteriology 101, the Facebook group. Oh, boy. And um, <laughs> so... There's a guy in here. I don't know if he would want me to read his name, so I won't read his name on it's this podcast. Um, but I do want to read what he wrote and and get your take on it. So he says, having been born into a cult, then excommunicated twice, I can assure you that it is impossible to see clearly while in that position uh, you are uh, brainwashed to believe not only the dogma, but to trust implicitly the leader at the head of the hierarchy. You're openly discouraged from thinking for yourself what the brains God has given you, to the point where it seems that part of your brain atrophies. Over 30 years later, it's now uh, very clear all these camps are cults. Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Adventist, Popery of Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, and yes, Calvinism. What woke me up? Question mark. Five words of the Holy Scripture. Honor thy father and thy mother, but no, we added to that, which is... What all Christian cults do, add to the word of God, beware when anyone, do, when anyone does that. And uh, there was a response here. I'll, I'll read this and then I'll turn it over to you and get your take on it. Um, that says, elevating the writings of John Calvin is wrong and dangerous. And then the response back was, we, we easily forget Satan's ancient trick. Yea, hath God said. Yes, has God said. He knows Holy Scripture better than any of us. So... If you would, John, um, give us your take on that as it's related to, uh, one, what you gave as a proper exegesis versus an eisegesis of, of Calvinism as it's related to the gospel and being predestinated to be saved um, as it's related to cultish mentality and uh, where you go in that side of the conversation um, in general. Well, that's a whole mouthful. <laughs> That's a lot to remember just to answer the question. My goodness, I'm getting old. Sorry, here. man. <laughs> okay, so no, let's sir, just start. I do have trouble. Can you put yeah, that in a small nut? Yeah, let's just let's just just take it here. This guy said that he was involved in a cult, a cult 
and then he he, he right. talks about coming out of it and he he talks about being able to identify what a cult is and and he clearly says um that he would include calvinism as um as a cult uh one because of the the hierarchical structure uh but two the the ne- the necessity of believing what is taught about these specific doctrines so like what you're reading in Ephesians 1 so um how would you how would let me just get you get this question and see how you would answer it in in what you just read in Ephesians chapter 1 and in the way that a calvinist would read it and uh, the relevance of that to our conversation with a cultish mentality, what would your recommendation be to anyone who is an inherit an, an, an adherent um, to Calvinism? And uh, what would your recommendation be to them? Well, how would I address a Calvinist to help them see their error? Well, I know there was one guy I used to listen to. He said when uh, talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, they'd go into a trance, and he'd have to slap his hands in front of him to wake him up and get him out of the trance. Something called cognitive dissonance, which I sent you a link in that thing too, in Athene's Theory of Everything on YouTube, the first 45 minutes, goes into great detail on how cognitive dissonance really works, and it's just profound. When talking to a cultist, a Calvinist or otherwise, they're not hearing necessarily what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. Literally, the brain will blank it out and recreate a memory of its own choosing, whether it's what they think, what they want to say, what they want to answer, and they fill in the blank. In the brain, just chops it out, puts in their own answer, and they never heard what you said. Yeah. So it's very important to have the eye contact. It's very important to to demand and ask questions for the definition of terms and then to offer your own definitions and to have an actual dialogue because once they get into that state of cognitive dissonance you've lost them you're not going to get through to them no matter how long you talk to them so when you talk to them about Ephesians 1 4 and you say where in that verse does it say to be safe predestined or chosen to be safe they can't even hear it for the longest time most of them will get irate They'll get into what's called the fight or flight response. They'll just say, <laughs> or they'll go, oh, I'm through here. They, they, they get fear, or and out of that fear comes those two adrenaline responses. And so you don't get anywhere with them because they won't hear you anymore. They won't listen to what you're saying. This is where, where apologetics has to train people not only to fight and resist their own cognitive dissonance when someone else is teaching and you seem to be pretty good at it me i have a little trouble sometimes. oh i don't know about that <laughs> but you've got to be able to hear what they're saying so that you can refute it so you learn to take notes when they're talking yeah. that's one of the ways you overcome your cognitive because you can forget whole sections of what they're saying if you're not careful yeah um i take them to that verse and i again if they don't answer if they refuse or if they change it i go i don't let them take me off on a rabbit trail which is their favorite tactics i go right back to that verse again i say look where in this verse does it say to be saved well it's assumed it's presumed yeah. I said, yeah you're doing presumptive eisegesis you're inserting into this statement something that is not found in the statement no because you assume it has to be there so. No, that's good. Um, okay, so let's see. I want to give you guys a chance um, who are listening live 
to call in if you want to. Uh, that number is going to be 816-866-0025. And I'll put it up on the screen for you as well. So if you want to call in, you can. Um, and I should be able to get that whenever you do. But uh, let's see. We've got we've been going for an hour and a half so far. We just really? talked about... <laughs> it doesn't seem like it, does it? Um, Not to me. We just talked about uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, what... I know that you put in your notes here Athene's theory of everything. Did you want to take a second to talk about that, or? Um... Yeah, I stumbled across that video okay. while just looking at stuff, and I happened to listen a little bit because he talked about something called cognitive dissonance. Okay. For the first forty-five minutes, he talks and goes into great detail on how it works and what it does and how the brain uh, manipulates its own memories. Yeah. And so I encourage people to watch the first 45 minutes because everything after that is about him railing on Christians and how we don't listen to anything they say yeah. because of it. So that's what, I, that's what I was getting at about watching. It'll give you the foundational understanding of what you're dealing with when you're dealing with a cult of any kind or even an atheist or even a, you know, someone in a different religion. You've got to get past this cognitive dissonance wall that goes up. Yeah. Okay, so you've got two questions that you that you ask here in relation to the strong delusion in Second Thessalonians two verses nine through twelve, and right. uh, I want to read that passage and then ans uh, ask the questions that you've got here. Give me just a what sec. Page was that? Uh, what page no. Okay, um, that is page ten. I'm already up at fifteen. Okay, going back. Again, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I've got to type it in here. I don't even know. Okay, page 10. The Strong Delusion, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Okay, give me just a second. Um, okay, so it says this, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send at them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Um, and these are the, this is the first point that you, you made, the first question that you bring up in reference to that. Um, and if you wanted to talk about the tense of the passage in John 3 and 1 John 1 and that kind of thing, um, maybe that could be the prelude to answering the question where you say, can a cultist uh, be saved in a cult? Can or should we call them brother? So if you could just answer that question and, and see where you go with that in reference to Second Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Well, as I was explaining earlier, when a person comes into a religious Christian, pseudo or otherwise, they might actually hear the gospel out of the message. They might. Don't know for sure, but they might need, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Jesus is my savior. Okay, I'm sorry, God, forgive me. That's a very fundamental, primitive, basic concept of the gospel and salvation. They are forgiven of their sins because God takes them at their word. He forgives them right then and there. They're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Now, this is something where I can't make the decision, but God can, as to whether or not they're going to be truly repentant and really believing the true gospel at that point. But he can and if they're sincere, even though they don't know anything about what they're getting involved with, say you went into uh, the NAR church, you know, you might hear the gospel, but 
but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on there besides just that. In time, that person will be confronted by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was given to reprove the world of sin and to guide us into all truth. Now, I believe that's literal. I don't think that's just some sort of passive statement. I think that he is working right now in you and in me and anybody else who loves the Lord and wants to know the truth at all costs. I'll go anywhere you take me. If you can prove the truth to me, I'll go there. But I'm not, because nothing I hold is sacrosanct that I hold it above the Word of God. The Holy Spirit's working on that person to bring them out of the cult. He wants them to hear the truth, and they have to decide that they want the truth more than they want to be in their group. Cults use isolation of, you know, people who are isolated, lonely, needy, poor, people who have something they can get their hooks in. And this idea is that you're one of us now. When I was researching the, the Mooney, Moon Church, Mooney Church, Reverend Sun Young Moon, back in California, they used to take people, the young people, they'd gather up off the streets who were runaways and homeless and what have you. They'd drag them out to their compound about 75 miles into the Northern California wilderness in the middle of nowhere, and then they'd put them through an indoctrination program. And they would never leave you alone. One of their members, usually the, and almost always the opposite sex, would come up and put their arm around you all the time. You would, couldn't even go to the bathroom without finding them standing outside the door. That's how they kept you in there, by, by this idea of making you feel loved and welcome. In this verse in Second Thessalonians, these people have to decide if they love the truth more than they love anything else. Who we know is Jesus. The I am the truth, right? If they want the truth, if they're sincerely seeking the truth, then God's going to give it to them. They're going to see it. They're going to see that light, right? They're going to be given that revelation if nothing else according to uh ephesians 1 verse 17 and 18 and first corinthians 2 verses 6 through 16 they're going to be given understanding of who the truth is now at that point they still have hold on to your seat calvinist the free will to choose to do that to reject it because they want more that acceptance and love that they're getting from this group than they want the truth there's this battle that takes place for their soul. But if they choose to deny the truth and walk in the darkness, as it says in John chapter 3, or again in 1 John 1, uh, 5 through 10, or here in this issue of 2 Thessalonians, then God will withdraw himself. He will not contend with these people forever. There comes a point where they have made their decision, and God alone, not me, I'm not judging, God alone knows they're, they're there. They're not coming out of it now so he does not force himself upon them because james says the wisdom from above is easy to be entreated it's gentle it's pure and it does not force itself on you he's not going to speak to you like bat, 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 wake up get in line he's going to say come pleadingly soft small still voice it says come to the truth here's the truth can they be saved in a cult no can they be saved out of the cult yes can they be can they be saved while in the Jehovah's Witnesses and be saved remaining in it? Not if they stay there. If they don't come out of it at some point, then they're ignoring 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, which is very critical. You want me to read that to you? Uh, what was it? 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 14 through 18. Okay, yeah, if you want to read it, go ahead. 
I can, or you can. You may be a better reader than me. Oh, I, I don't be know Be ye not that. unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial, or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple with I? Ye are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So this is the principle that you can't stay in the cult forever. I mean, sure, it may take you a few years. It may take you five, even ten years to finally realize that this is wrong. I can't be here. But they got to come out of it at some point and acknowledge that what they were t being told and taught was not the truth. Otherwise, they're calling the Holy Spirit a liar, and that's blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Oh, man, it just logged me out of here. I was trying to write a message to F.W. Joseph. So um, I know you had called in earlier, and uh, for whatever reason, it, it was before we had gone um, live in our live stream. So there, mu there must have been some confusion on when we were going live. And uh, yep. I, don't know, I don't know what the deal was on that. Um, so I apologize for whatever the confusion was on that. Um, but anyways, if you wanted to call in F.W. Joseph, feel free to do that. Um, the number to call is 816-866-0025. And if you have a question, um, we should be able to get that. But my chat system for me to respond to your chat in the live stream, um, for whatever reason, it just logged me out. So it, it's not letting me, it did not let me respond to you. Um, but, so I figured I'd just address you on here. So it, that goes for any of you all who are watching live as well. So if you wanted to call in, feel free. You're more than welcome to. And we should be able to get that on the air now. So, anyways, let's go to let's go to our final point, and then I've got a couple of questions that had come in online, and we might be able to wrap it up. I think that yeah, we're going on about an hour and forty minutes now. So, um, which this has been a really good conversation. I think primarily the reason why it's important for me um, and you to have this conversation is to identify what a cold is. But more importantly, to show people what the true gospel is and how someone is actually saved. So um, when we get to the point to closing um, the podcast today, I'd like to give as clear a presentation of the gospel as possible. Um, because obviously that would be the whole point of having this this conversation. So Sydney Odogwu, I'm pronouncing your name right. I know, Sydney, you had um, just friended me not too long ago. I think you were from... Uh, where was it? I think it was somewhere in Africa, but um, if you could... Nigeria. Nigeria. Yeah, so um, if it, I, he says, I wish that this uh, conversation could go on forever. And I do too, man. I, this is, I mean, to me, it, I love having conversations like this. I mean, obviously, you and I, John, we're going to disagree on some things like uh, eternal security, um, uh, whether or not the, um, the gospel and its presentation is, is a conditional or unconditional covenant. Um, and just some things like that. But I, you know what? That doesn't mean that we can't have fellowship. It doesn't mean that we can't um, find the things that w we do agree on and, and have conversations on that. And that's important um, to be able to do that. So um, I do appreciate you coming on and, and having that conversation with me. But let's look at another, another one of these points is um, you had alluded to it earlier in reference to Romans chapter 1. And this is going to be, um, this is going to piggyback into what Gary Whitehouse 
has written in his question. So I want to take this and see if we can draw it to that um, okay. and, and wrap it up here with it as it's related to the gospel and it's related to um, cults. Um, but specifically you say in, in your second point in, in reference to the strong delusion and you're talking about accountability to the light that we're given. Are we accountable only for the light that we are given or, or called to be a good Berean? Some would say that we're held accountable only for the understanding, which would be the light that we have been given. Um, but you would say that's only true to a point. So can you take that and just kind of run with it? Where where are you going in that side of the conversation as, as it's related to the gospel and as it's related to um, the strong delusion in cults? When any Christian, any person rather, comes to the gospel message and is believing in the message as a baby, what we call a baby, carnal-minded Christian, they probably don't know much and nothing about any of these doctrines, of the salvific ones or any others. They're just there and suddenly they realize, man, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I, Jesus has exhibited the perfect example of love I've ever seen in the world, ever. And I want to believe in this person. I want to submit to him. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit who came to reprove the world of sin. That's what it is. And so they get saved, but they don't know nothing. They don't know the left from the right hand yet. They're, they're just babies. And, and God has grace for them. And that's why we have a covenant of grace, because God is merciful. He's not out to send anybody to hell if he doesn't have to. He just, he just hopes and prays, and he sends his spirit to come and dwell in us. And he regenerates our human spirit so that we can walk with him and talk with him in the spirit-to-spirit -spirit communion to learn the truth. And this process takes time, and God's grace covers these people. In any sect, I don't care, even in a cult, that can happen. But it does not go on forever, because my, my spirit will not always drive with flesh. And, of course, that's talking about how men won't live beyond 120 years. But the idea is that God's Spirit can be grieved, can be quenched, and he will not continue to strive with someone who does not want to hear it or who has made it their definitive statement, I don't believe that. Jesus is not God because there's only one God. The Father's God and Jesus must be whatever you want to put in there, prophet, man, you know, mighty God, whatever excuse you want to come up to deny his deity, but that's what you believe and you're not changing. God being omniscient is going to know that you're not changing your mind again. You're not going to come around. You refuse. So he is not going to spend more time trying to convince that person, knowing they will never change their position. But there are those who do hear it and come out of it. Am I am I answering your question in in any sense? Uh, yeah. Like de dealing yeah. with it. Yeah. I'm trying to be uh, clear on this. Um, the people don't really understand the grace of God as they ought. It, it, it is very, very big towards all men. I mean, His mercy, which is an essence part of His grace, is new every morning. Thank God for that, and most of us would make it, right? We, we need to realize that sometimes we need to repent. And, and if God's mercy wasn't new the next day, I might not, you know, have gotten, I might have been in trouble. I, we won't go there because we know that argument already is on the table. Um, his mercy towards new believers is also great, and he's going to wait until they have had a chance to make up their mind, to understand, and either to accept or reject the truth. You know, when it talks about coming into the light in John 3, 
the principle is very clear. There are those that love the light and those that hate the light. Those that won't come into it because they like their sin, they like their darkness better, they like what they're doing being hidden because they don't want to know the truth because it means they're wrong. It says, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light either comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And that brings us to the subject of the patriarchal voice and the issue of how that there, that people who will hear the patriarchal voice and the rebuke and chastisement are willing to change their position. But those that don't, and that's what postmodernism is about and teaching everyone to do, to ignore the patriarchal voice, will not change their position, will not hear, will not receive correction and as it says in Amos 5:10 it says that oh I got to pull it up I'm sorry <laughs> this this the lord brought it to me just just the other day and I thought man that that nails it for the patriarchal voice where are you Amos there you are Amos 5:10 and it says basically <clears throat> I'm getting there for uh, they hate him that rebukes in the gate they abhor him that speaks uprightly. This is Jesus said himself. You know, they're gonna they hated me, they're gonna hate me. Yeah. They don't want the truth. They want what they like, they want their comfort, they want their money, they want their friends, they want their cult, their sect, their denomination. And if what you're saying doesn't agree with them, well, blankety blank to you. You see. And so this is the nature of how would we deal with these people and even in Christian sects. People if they're being compelled to the truth and don't want to see it, they turn aggressive, they turn fearful, they leave, or they refuse to listen. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's good. Guys, I want to make sure that if you if, if you want to call in, you can. Um, and it's totally fine if we don't get any calls that come in. Um, but the number, again, is 816-866-0025. If you want to call in, no big deal. Uh, but I do want to. I want to end on this point, and then um, give a good, good, good presentation for the gospel after we get Gary's question in here. Um, where I was having a conversation with a guy on Twitter, uh, who was kind of the catalyst for me and Lewis Dizon um, having our debate on the doctrine of justification. Who Lewis? If you haven't watched that debate, he was a, a convert from uh, Protestantism to Catholicism. And so it's obviously that's a direct 180 degree turn from faith alone and grace alone. Um, and so that's it's a it, listen to that if you get a chance to. I think that we really um, were able to present a clear understanding of his position um, in reference to his understanding of the gospel within Catholicism versus uh, what I would say is the big biblical position on the gospel as it's related to grace and faith um, separate from works. So. If you get a chance to listen to that, but in the relevance of this conversation um, with cults and uh, specifically with the relevance of kind of the times that we're in, I mean, obviously, every the whole world is affected right now by something that we've never we've never seen before. I've never seen before in my lifetime. Um, there's so much fear uh, that's that's driving um, kind of the the precautions and the actions that people are taking to keep from getting this coronavirus. And this coronavirus is something that has had an effect literally on the entire world that, you know, um, people in America, I mean, I was down in Arizona last week, I've been up in Kansas City this week, and you cannot find toilet paper or baby wipes anywhere around here. 
Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I, what I was, what I'm getting at, you're asking what what's the relevance to our conversation here with what you're bringing up with the coronavirus. The relevance is this, it, it, as it's related to um, cults and cult mentality and control and a fear-driven thing. Um, if if you're a if you're a Roman Catholic, you believe that you are literally receiving and partaking in um, the 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 once and for all sacrifice of Christ in the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist. Um, and obviously, around the world, um, Catholicism has decided that they're not going to have the Mass uh, until this situation is taken care of. So, what that means is. If you really believe in, in transubstantiation, that you cannot receive Christ until this ban is lifted. So my question to this fellow that I had had a conversation with um, on Twitter that led to our debate on the doctrine of justification was, if you really believe in transubstantiation, that it, it the substance of the bread, the substance of the wine, literally becomes the substance of Christ's body and the substance of the wine... Why are you not participating in 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 uh, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, if you really believe that it cannot contain the coronavirus, that Christ's body will not contain the coronavirus, that that the body and the blood of Christ in these elements is purely the body and blood of Christ, that it won't. So, how would you how would you handle that in the relevance of this conversation of cults and control and fear um, as it relates to? Uh, that side of the conversation with the gospel, John. Well, what you've got going here is a buildup of one confusion upon another in these doctrines and, and endless influences of paganism on the transubstantiation idea. We don't need to partake of his physical, literal blood and body to be able to be saved. That's not what Paul was talking about in those statements. He's talking about this moral principles of the covenant and the shed blood for our salvation but not that we have to eat physical blood or or, or or drink physical blood or eat physical body to imbue some sort of grace and again the Roman Catholics add to their confusion the idea that grace is like a substance it's like a power it's infused into you to make you able to do something you otherwise couldn't do that's not what grace is in the slightest grace is God's unearned un merited mercy and all the things he does for us through regeneration and renewing of the mind and enable us to walk with him in a relationship with him through the leading of the holy spirit is not grace it's the benefits of having the covenant of grace the mercy of god and forgiveness of our sins just like salvation doesn't include all those things salvation is saving of your soul from hell period that's it that's the basic meaning of the concept nothing more can be added to it without polluting its actual meaning when you talk oh well we got to take this that eat this we got to have this sacrament or that sacrament you're simply confusing the issue for the sake of control really they want to control people well you've got to be baptized in our church otherwise you can't go to heaven well gee that I guess I'm a slave to you now forever, you know, or whatever. Take the communion. I got to take your communion. Otherwise, I'm going to hell. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Now I'm your slave. Go ahead. Here's my pocket. Open it up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> take out the money. You know, and these controlling mechanisms are Nicolaitan spirits is what these things are promoting. Yeah. And they're part of a, of a pile 
of confusion. I don't know how else to put it. One lie, one false idea based on another idea, another idea piled up till the, you can't dig out the whole truth from it. You got to start from the ground and rebuild a solid foundation on Jesus Christ. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, that's good, man. Um, so let's take that and get to Gary's question, which he asked a while back. Um, and if we have time, I want to get to Randy's question as it, as it was related to... I got all the time. Awesome. Okay. Um, so Gary says, let me put it up on the screen for those of you who are watching. Uh, Gary says this. He says, my understanding on Romans chapter 1 uh, is that they were saved by conscience in the Old Testament. He says, Josh and I had gotten into this discussion about our salvation in the Old Testament a while back, but uh, that was a comment that was followed up by, ooh, where is it? Yeah, this was followed up by um, his comment uh, that there may be differences in how they were saved under conscience in the Old Testament and how they are saved now. So I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure that I understand where Gary's going with that, but if you could, yeah, um, John, what would your take be on that as it's related to Romans 1 and um, maybe a difference in salvation in the Old Testament new, and then I'll give you my take on it. I listened to the discussion about that. I listened to your discussion with him and others about that. And what you guys are all mistaking and misunderstanding is that the atonement began before the foundation of the world, according to Revelations 13.8. That atonement was seen of God as present, even there before he said, let there be light. Every person from that moment on, Adam and Eve and forth, were saved in exactly the same way you and I are, yeah. by their faith. Yep. Okay, and the Messianic promise was there as a testimony to God's grace and mercy of a coming Messiah. Their faith reached forward to the cross, the central moment of human history, yeah. while our faith reaches back to that same cross. They weren't saved by their works, because by the works of the law, no man can be justified. You have to do it perfectly under that contract, or you're gonna, or you're, you broke it all, James said. If you don't do every commandment, even though break the least one, you're just as guilty as if you broke them all. So there's nobody was saved in the Old Testament except they were saved by their faith in God. Those people in, like Abraham, yep. who from his youth believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay, that he understood there was one true God and that there was not a whole bunch of different deities out there. He was the first monotheist, I believe, in the true sense of the word. Um, I guess I should say that. There is no difference in my understanding between the Old Testament and New Testament peoples. Those that were saved then were saved the same way we are today, by our faith. And when you know God, you know that he's a God that's righteous and holy, and that brings repentance and, you know, for the sins we commit. And forgiveness comes to them the same way it does when Dave, David said, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thine Holy Spirit from me. He was pleading, pleading with God for the mercy of God based upon the promises of God of a Messiah coming to David who would save him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so actually, I don't think that you and I disagree there. I think um, one of the strongest points to support what, oh, what you said is in Hebrews 10, um, where where it says that Abraham received Christ in a figure when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And, and right. I, to me, like 
I do believe in progressive revelation. I don't believe that Abraham knew that he was receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ and believing right. the promise of God, but I do believe that was revealed later um, through the inspiration of God in the New Testament writers. So I, I do think that's something to point out. I don't necessarily think that the, the saints in the Old Testament knew anything about uh, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ too. No. Um, because, but, but, but on the flip side, you kind of see that they, they thought about these things. Because, I mean, even David wrote, Blessed is the man to whom um, the, uh, God does not impute their sin. So they understood right. that, that their sin could be passed over, that it wouldn't be imputed to them. But I'm not sure that they, they saw the substitution of God becoming man to pay the penalty for their sin and uh, to declare them righteous by his own righteousness. Like, that seems like something that was on hindsight of going, you know what, like God looks at these times and winks at them going, you know what, you guys are looking through a dark dark glass and one day you're going to look through it clearly and we're going to see him face to face and understand exactly what was going on. And and for them, I think that it's it's somewhat similar. I, I do think that there's there's some things that I have difficulty in seeing the the exact um, kind of um, um, replica of the Old Testament to the New Testament salvation in the sense that uh, of regeneration. I have a hard time finding regeneration in the Old Testament. I have a hard time oh, finding each. Boy. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, but I can show you many. Well, I'd like to see that. I mean, you'd be you'd be one of I've seen a lot of guys who have attempted to to show it. Um, I've I've not found anything that I've been satisfied with on the explanation. There are seventy six people in the Old Testament that the Bible declares they've been regenerated. Um, I believe the number is seventy six. It might be a little higher. Well, if we've got if if we've if we have the time tonight and you want to come back to that, I'd be more than happy to come back to that because that's <laughs> that's interesting to me. Um, but I've spent 45 years studying that subject and I'm ready to talk for at least eight hours on it. <laughs> well, maybe we need to do another podcast. I could write on it. a thousand page book on it from memory. You should. I'm trying to. <laughs> I've written a thousand pages in other books, but combined, but they're about all kinds of subjects too. So. Um, which you had sent me uh, in that email that you have written a book. What was what's that book called, and how can how can our viewers get a hold of it? It's my own editing, so please have mercy on me. <laughs> I just did it all myself. It's called the Persnickety Musings of the Penitent Sinner. Okay, and what would that on be Amazon about? Amazon Kindle. Basically, what it is is a really boring book, because what I did was as I dealt with people on different sources and websites pal talk and other places people would ask questions or make statements or claim claims about scriptures and i would refute it or i would explain it or i would help them see where they might be wrong or right giving them better understanding of these things yeah so what it is there's no chapter there is not a single chapter in the book it's 200 pages approximately of people who ask a question and then i give an answer Somebody asks another question, I give an answer. And sometimes I had to repeat myself for different people because they would ask a question. But because of the way they asked it, you'd have a different angle on the same issue and give more information. So it's really a very boring book unless you love theology, in which case you're going to either get irritated by me or you're going to be amazed at the great things that you can learn from it, I hope. Okay, I'm not trying to dose or anything, but 
No, that's good. I've spent many years on this one subject, and a lot of my questions are around that subject. But any subject that came up, the deity of Christ, you name it, it's in there. Good. Um, okay. It's a sort of smorgasbord. <laughs> yeah, so if you guys get a chance to check that out, I've not actually, um, I haven't looked into it myself, but it sounds like it, it's, it's right up my alley and the stuff that I'm interested in, so... Uh, Jeff Bailey, you asked if uh, my content is available on YouTube or on podcast. Yes, it is. Um, we broadcast it, or I broadcast it, on uh, 10 different video platforms. It used to be 11, but um, one of those uh, was on uh, It was on a, um, a video platform in Africa, and it never got a, it, it's never got a single view. And I don't understand why. Maybe there's something I just didn't figure out there. Um, but we do have people who view in Africa. It's just not on that platform. So, um, yeah, you can get it on YouTube. Um, it's Talking Christianity Apologetics um, on YouTube. On Facebook, it's just under my personal name, Joshua Gibbs. Um, you can ask to be my friend and you'll get notifications anytime we go live on Facebook. It's on my Facebook page, which is Talking Christianity. Um, so you can be, you can join our Facebook page and, and uh, get notifications that way. It's on Periscope and Twitter, uh, but what I do is I, I take the audio, extract the audio out of the video, and then put it into the, the podcast. So it's literally on any podcasting platform that you can imagine, as far as I know. If, if it's not on one that you want it to be on, guys, just let me know and I'll do my best to get it on there. But it should be um, available everywhere. And um, it's kind of cool because I was, I was looking at the numbers on the podcast, the audio side, and I was looking at the numbers from uh, the video side. Just in the last six months, we've had well over thirty thousand views, and it's 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 in so many countries now. Like um, it's just amazing to see um, kind of what it's doing. Um, and not that the numbers are important or anything. I think that the content and, and the conversation and getting the gospel out is more important than any of that stuff. But it's just kind of cool to see what God has been doing with it. So, anyways. Um, yeah, so Gary, you and I have had a few conversations on that subject in Romans 1, and I, I know that you hold a, um, kind of an in-between hyper and, and ultra dispensational perspective on <laughs> salvation um, as, as it's related to Old Testament and New Testament salvation. And the reason why that is so important to me, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I went to a church and I even taught hyper dispensationalism for years. Um, so I understand it pretty well. Um, I understand the Ruckman position, the Bollinger position, um, um, Larkin's position, um, and he wouldn't he wouldn't fall into either one of those categories. But there's those are three different clear dispensational points of view, and I I I 100% have in my heart gone. You know what? I'm I was wrong on Old Testament salvation, thinking that works was involved there. I was wrong. On thinking that uh, tribula the tribulation had works as a part of salvation, um, and and I openly admit that, guys, like I was wrong there. Um, I would hold what's I'm glad to hear it because I remember so. hearing that. Sorry. No, I mean <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I man. Remember hearing you say that. I remember when it was when when I really started um, to look into it a little more deeply. Um, I, I I remember like just putting my hands down, putting the book down. And just looking up and going, God, man, I'm wrong on this, and I, I've got to repent. God, I'm sorry. Like, help me to, help me to make corrections for the people that I've taught um, to show that like I was wrong here. And uh, and it, honestly, guys, I've got to say, like, um, the peace in my heart of understanding, 
like there are no differences um, in Old Testament or New Testament salvation, tribulation salvation as it's related to works and, and that side of the conversation. It's just, it really is amazing to know, like, when you really think about it, there is a war in your heart going, man, that's just not consistent where we're, where we're at. Like, why would God say all these things about it not being of works and then make it of works at any other point in history? Um, it, whether it's grace plus works or just works or whatever. And, and that's just not the case. So anyways, that's kind of a long answer to that question. But, um, but yeah, I believe that Romans 1 is, is more or less giving a declaration as an opener to uh, the people in Rome and addressing the fact that um, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles and here's the state that the Gentiles are in spiritually that's going to be addressed by Paul in the following chapters. Um, so, anyways, yeah, that'd be my position, Gary. Um, but anyways, I think that's all the questions that that we've got that came in other than Randy. Randy, I do want to um, get your question in. And, John, I want to give you the chance to answer it. Randy is... is okay. um, He's a self-proclaimed atheist agnostic. We've done two debates. and I think I heard one. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. He's very knowledgeable. He claims to have uh, taught in church and been a Christian for at least 17 years. And then um, after he, he studied science a little bit more and was studying the, um, the character of some of the mainstream Christians um, that, that um, upon further examination and trying to come to a conclusion on on the nature of evil and the problem of evil that he became an agnostic atheist which i don't i don't know how you can be an agnostic atheist um in my own mind like you're either settled on the matter or you're not so like pick a side but (laughs) but anyways randy here's here's his question he says um if there's time let me put it on the screen for those of you guys that are watching still he says how do you feel about um what many anthropologists say which is that all religions begin as cults. So, John, I'll give you a chance to answer that. Well, if you remember what I said before, cult and its basic idea from the word culture is that people with a common interest, so matchbook collectors, car collectors, people who like red hats, they're a cult. But does that mean it's evil? And the second point is that that statement only holds true if you assume there is no such thing as an actual God, the real and one and only, the monotheistic concept of Judaism and Christianity, that, oh, yeah, they all began as cults. So what? <laughs> you know, people that like to, to that have red hair, they are all cults. Does that make them bad? Does that, where's the problem here? I don't understand what the significance of saying that is. What does it prove? What it's basically the, the underlying idea under there is oh they just a bunch of people who all got there and decided to believe something just made it all up well no that's not true the bible is based upon the fulfillment of thousand or more prophecies specific prophecies that were fulfilled including jesus's own coming and how he came and what he came to do and all these prophecies fulfilled that no other religious book none has any of this in it or depends or uh, bases its authority as divinely inspired on the um, fulfillment of those prophecies. Only the Bible does that. That's just one of many, many proofs I could pull up 
for why the Bible isn't just some group of people who came together and made up a bunch of ideas and decided to become a you know, religion. That isn't the way the Bible works. In fact, it really doesn't fit the Bible narrative. I mean, we've got Adam and Eve. They weren't in anybody's cult, were they? <laughs> they were they just the father and mother of the whole human race. And then he got down to Noah. Well, he pretty much wiped everybody out except for his own family, but they weren't in a cult. Not in a negative sense, not in some sense that they're just just trying to make up a religion because they hold to the religion of Adam and Eve, of a, of a monotheistic God. And it's just not a really good question. That's, I guess, the best answer I give. It's not a good question because it doesn't represent, or a, a statement even, because it doesn't truly represent the reality of the situation. It sort of colors it and, and misrepresents what's really going on here. Yeah, there are lots of false religions out there that have started from some small group of people. I mean, even China with their Changxi, uh, Changti, sorry, God, the God who's the most high God in China for thousands of years in the beginning, you know, eventually devolved into a bunch of little groups of animism and humanism, whatever. Uh, ancestor worship is the word I'm looking for. So I'm sorry, sir, but but I don't see that as an issue. I really don't. I don't know why anyone would even think that has any real relevance to the matter of, of the biblical belief system and religion, which has a wide tradition and and of, um, I don't know, fulfillment of prophecy, specific purpose and plan that no one over the, the 1,500 to 2,000 years of its writings could have ever organized to make up. It just had to be what it is, and the fulfillment of those prophecies proves that it was God's divinely inspired word, and not just a group of people making it up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Josh, do you, am I being clear at all? No, absolutely. And and I would no. piggyback off of that to say, um, when, when we're talking about Christianity and in, in relevance to the conversation we're having about the foundation of other religions as related to what an, an anthropologist would say, um, all religions are founded off of uh, a starting point of it being a cult. I, I think that what you've got to look at is the fundamental difference of Christianity to any other religion out there. And the way that Christianity started was Christianity, it, 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 it's not founded upon, and listen, li try to listen to me really carefully when I say this, because I don't want it to come across wrong. There's no doubt that Christianity is founded upon Christ. Christianity um, is, is something that precludes the incarnation of Christ. You know what I mean? In, in reference to worshiping the one true God, that precluded the incarnation of Christ when, when Christ became a man, when God became a man. Um, and the foundation of Christianity is that it's not a religion. I know that when you check the box and you're, you're um, whatever it is um, that you're filling out for the census, that you're, what your religion is, Christianity would be one of the options. But when you look at Christianity, Christianity is not a religion. And Christianity is, is literally something that is based upon um, an experience of a relationship with the God of the universe. And when we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ and we say that he is God, we're not saying that he became God when he was born. We're saying that he pre-existed from eternity past before anything was created. He was there with God, as God, the second person in the Trinity. 
Um, and I was talking about this not too long ago, as it's related to the creation and the Trinitarian formula within the creative events uh, of the universe. And you see that, that God spoke all things into existence in Genesis 1. Jesus Christ is said to have formed all those things that were spoken into existence. And then the Holy Spirit, that's in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. And then the Holy Spirit breathed life into those things. That would be, that would be your sentience. That would be your soul. That would be the, the spiritual body that you cannot see but that you know is there. Um, and every philosopher and every atheist has to have an explanation for sentience within uh, human beings or even even animals. And anthropologists don't have an answer for that. And Randy doesn't have an answer for that. Um, and saying, I don't know, isn't an answer for that. But and, and saying, well, God did it, is not a sufficient answer for that. But looking towards the evidence for why the Bible would be a good answer for saying, you know, God said that he did that, why that is a good answer saying, well, the Bible says, is, is for what John brought up when he's, he's describing the relevance and the importance of understanding prophecy. You will not find any atheist, any agnostic, any skeptic who is willing to have a legitimate conversation or debate on the topic of prophecy with any Christian who knows a sense, a scent of what they're talking about. Um, that is single-handedly the greatest proof um, for the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ is Amen. prophecy. I mean, when we talk about the testimony of Christ in Roman Revelation 1, it, it, in Revelation, I want to say 19, that testimony of Christ is literally the spirit of prophecy. Um, and prophecy is something that you can't, you can't argue against. The greatest argument that any of you who would deny prophecy would have is that it was written after the fact by a second hand in order to show that a prophecy was fulfilled, and you have zero evidence to support such a claim. But that's your, the best claim that you've got. And that's why you won't find anybody willing to debate it. Um, so with that said, guys, I would say um, in relevance to kind of conclude our conversation here, today um, in, in cults and understanding what true Christianity is, um, I think that there's, there's a good reason to believe what the Bible says about Christ and the gospel. And uh, John, I want to give you the, the last word. Um, if you could just give us a, a clear presentation for somebody who may have never heard um, uh, what the gospel is, that if they hear it for the first time, they might be able to understand and, 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 and turn to the Lord in faith. Well, the great creator, the Father, with his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit who created all things, created a man in his image and a woman in the image of the man that we might procreate and, and fill the earth with people. And as I told my brother many years ago, he did this knowing the cost, knowing that his son is already going to have to die on that cross for our sins. He did this regardless of what it would cost him because he loved us. He wanted us to love him freely. He wanted us to come to him and be saved and spend eternity with us in heaven, in his presence. We don't even have the ability to comprehend that, what he has got prepared for us. 
Now, the gospel message is a very simple one. It's a, a message of love, the greatest example of love that anyone could ever imagine, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords would come down to this earth, put on flesh, smell our stink, if I can be so blunt, smell and endure our presence, our coarseness, our rudeness, our profanity, our indecencies, our abuses, as they did to him, abusing him, because he loved us. There won't be another picture of love that is greater than that single picture. And God came down because he knew that, that he would have to our place on that punishment cross, if you will. He came down because he wanted us to have a means to be saved. He didn't force anybody to do it. He didn't come down as a 900-foot Jesus. He came down as a man. Just like you and me can get a sliver if he handled the wood wrong. He could get hurt. He could have done and gone hungry and been cold and suffered in every way so that he knew exactly what it was like. Exactly experienced what it was like to be a man and then came and died on that cross for your sins. He died because he loves you, not because he had to. He laid down his life willingly. He could have hung on that cross forever and never died. But at the time when it was fulfilled, he gave up his ghost and gave his life that we might have forgiveness. Don't reject that forgiveness. It has the most profound implications for the rest of your life and eternity to come. Don't forget that you don't have a promise of tomorrow. You don't have a promise of the next hour. Don't wait. Trust him. He loves you. He proved it. There's no story in any religion that even remotely comes close to the story of Jesus' sacrifice. Believe him. He loves you very much. And please turn to him. Ask for your forgiveness of your sins. Trust in him. Follow him. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Hey, that's good. And for those of you who uh, may have heard the gospel for the first time or may have um, come to the conclusion today that you want to follow Christ and that by doing so you've repented of your sins, which does not mean that you are turning from all of your sins in order to come into relationship with Christ, but that you have literally had a change of mind in understanding how God looks at your sin to understanding what that sin cost and the, the cost that was paid so that you don't have to um, essentially uh, pay for that sin yourself. Um, but And there's a lot of nuances in that conversation, but for the sake of, of the point that we're trying to make, the gospel is so simple. It's so beautiful. Yep. It's so simple. It's this. Christ is God who became a man so that you can have a relationship with him and spend eternity with him. He paid for your sins. What you, what you do, what your responsibility is, is to simply cry out to God with all of your heart and ask him to save you, recognizing that the work has already been done in Christ and that you're simply trusting the work of Christ to get you to heaven. That is the simplest way to understand the gospel. It's all been done for you. You're just accepting what's already been done. And when you do that, the Bible says that you become a new creature that old things are passed away and all, all, all things are become new. Um, and after you become a Christian, um, you should join a local church. You should be, get baptized. Uh, baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and you dying and being buried and being risen again with Christ. Um, and, and it's just 
those are those are a couple of things that you should do. If you don't, if you live in a place where you can't do that, um, you know what? You there's places like this, a podcast online, um, that you can you can talk to people and ask questions. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you've got that I can't answer. But anyways, I think that'd kind of be a wrap. Um, for today's podcast but john i really do appreciate you coming on and if we thank you if we get a chance to let's do let's talk about um regeneration in the old testament sometime that'd be fun okay but you know we got to lay the foundation in that concept there's like i say i've spoken for eight hours on it and there's a tremendous amount of information that needs to be laid as a foundation before we can even go and look at those uh people that are clearly regenerated in the Old Testament. No, I'm all so, for it. I'm down for it. Show me, man. Yeah, I've never seen anybody who could do it yet. And that doesn't mean that it's oh, not there. It just means I haven't seen it. So, Those that know me know that I can do it. <laughs> you, I have been doing this online for years. So there hasn't been a new question that anybody's ever brought on that subject to me that I haven't already dealt with. Yeah. Good. So, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. I'll send you some stuff and get... A foundation going so we can set up a, a discussion of that one that'll work and the relevant subjects that are tied to it there's about six or eight major issues that are tied to regeneration good okay yeah that'll work um and yeah so we'll set that up uh and then i'll cut to my closing scene and give an update on where we're at what to look forward to in, in um our upcoming episode so yeah john treat everybody thanks again for coming on thank you i've got to show you guys something really cool that you have not heard yet. This is an update from my program that I use, and you're going to love it. John Treat, everybody. John Treat. You couldn't hear that, John, but that was a bunch of applause. <laughs> they just gave us, in this new update, we've got some little sound clips that we can put in here. So, All right, man. Well, God bless, and uh, I'll talk to you soon and see if we can get something scheduled in the future. So, Forward to it. Cool. All right, guys. Let's uh, let's talk for just a second. That was that was uh, John Treat. So um, we had a chance to really kind of talk about um, Colts today, and a fun conversation to have, an important conversation to have. Um, but ultimately, guys, um, recognizing that Christianity is about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, without any condition set to that. Um, is extremely important. I know John and I have got some differences there on uh, being eternally secure in your salvation. Maybe that's something we can debate sometime. I don't know, but um, we'll see. But anyways, okay, so we've got Jonathan Sheffield. For those of you who are familiar with Jonathan Sheffield, he is uh, very involved in the academic conversation uh, of the Kama Yohaneum, um, which would be First John 5, 7. Um, a reference to the Trinity, probably the greatest reference to the Trinity in all of the Bible. And uh, it just so happens that uh, the Nestle Alonde edition, the UBS edition um, of the Greek New Testament does not have it in there as being authentic. They call it spurious. They say it's not part of the Bible. It's not something that John wrote. Um, and Jonathan Sheffield has put a challenge out to a lot of different scholars and even offered honorariums to, to have a debate about it. And for, what, for whatever reason, is not able to find anybody who will debate him on that other than James Snap. And, and he and James have gone back and forth uh, on that topic a, a number of different times. If we can make that one happen, that'd be great. But we've got to come up with a little more narrowed down um, that side of the conversation and what we're going to actually debate there if, we're, if it's going to happen. So 
Um, we'll see. But anyways, Jonathan Sheffield's going to come on. We're going to talk about his defense for um, 1 John 5-7 and specifically with uh, the canonicity of the text within the Textus Receptus. And, and that should be interesting. So anyway, stay tuned for that. I think that's next week. Uh, we've got a couple more coming up as well. I know Mark Ward is, is looking to debate somebody on uh, the readability of the King James Version. Um, as he's written a book on the readability of the King James Version and why it needs updated and uh, that kind of thing. So, anyways, we'll see. I'll keep keep you updated on what, where we go from here. But that should do it for today's episode. God bless and have a great evening. <laughs>